Welcome to this episode of the Little Dudes Insect Academy podcast, and I'm excited to be here with um, Terry McGlynn, and um, I'm excited about this episode. Um, he's a brand new guest on the show, so welcome to the show, Terry. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, why don't we just jump right into it? Um, how long have you been originally um, interested and passionate about entomology? Um, well, I think it's it started late in college, early in grad school. Um, so it's actually been, you know, a couple decades now since I've been an entomologist for a while, yeah. you know, some people like, you know, you know, some people when they're kids are like, Oh my God, I love bugs. Bugs are my thing. I collected bugs. I built a bug collection, you know, obviously. Right. Um, and that just was not me. Like I, as a kid, I did other things, you know, uh, I was, I was big into, I did Boy Scouts and, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, Atari video games and reading and whatever else I, w- I was interested in spending time outdoors, but I wasn't necessarily like, but I wasn't buggish in any kind of way. Yeah. Like um, pretty much every little boy is just like, just like that pretty much. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, but sometimes you talk to a lot of entomologists and it, like, you know, and they're like, oh, well, no one else was into bugs. But I was, you yeah. know, and, and so, but that, you know, and for me, actually, I got into uh, insects backwards where when I was in college, like I was a, I was a pre-med, like I was, I don't know why I wanted to be a doctor. It just seemed like a good job or whatever. But then I started taking courses in evolutionary biology and I audited an entomology course and biogeography and things related to ecology and organismal biology. Okay. Um, and I was really, really curious about um, the weirdness in social insects about how you have workers that don't reproduce, right? So in mm. ant colonies and bees and wasps and termites, yeah. there's you have your queens and, and termites kings who are reproductive, but in general, the, the worker bees and ants uh, don't lay eggs, they don't reproduce, which is an evolutionary problem to think about like why is it that something evolves that doesn't reproduce when everything we learn about how biology works now natural selection works is all about you know maximizing one's fitness that's how natural selection works so can natural selection create an organism like how can you how is an ant exist Mm. even though it doesn't reproduce that seems like an evolutionary weirdness yeah um and then then i started getting interested in ants and working on ants and then I just generally got more excited about insects in general, but I was more interested in the behavior and evolution rather than just thinking, well, bugs are cool, but now I'm landed at ants are cool. Specifically. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So later, later start in life than some other people, but um, regardless, it, it all works out in the end. Right. So um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit. We'll get into your, uh, your work um, here in a minute, but what was your schooling like both as um, a young adult in middle school and high school, and then eventually into college? Yeah. Um, I, I just went to um, like, uh, like the, uh, my parents had sent me to like this uh, Catholic uh, junior high and high school. Yeah. Um, and it was like an all, it was all, all boys high school, which also I think is just a rather odd, weird thing. Um, <laughs> but, um, and so, um, and, uh, I, in terms of like thinking about, I, I, t- I was an AP biology in high school and I was really excited about biology then. Yeah. Um, and, and 
But when I was looking at organisms, right, being outdoor, going backpacking and hiking and camping, you know, I was interested in the plants and the wildlife. And it was more just the atmosphere of being outdoors, which I loved. Um, And it wasn't until I was going on field trips in college where we'd be doing projects involving insects and things like that. I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is really interesting. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So, so it kind of caught your eye. Um, but you didn't really get super into it until later on. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, um, and still to this day, I don't, um, like I don't have a collection. I don't do collect. I, I do collecting for the purpose of my research. Yeah. Um, but when I like hanging out with bugs, I like doing it in, in outside, like, you know, like watching them and following them. Um, you know, and it's like the, I'm more interested in the behavior and the social interactions and the, you know, when they interact with their environment. Yeah. And that's, that's why you are so passionate about social insects and specifically ants is because of their behavior and, um, communication, all that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, some people do all of it. <laughs> um, some people like to collect and identify and all that. And some people much like myself also like to see the, um, the behaviors and, um, the, the tendencies of the live specimen. Um, and that's why, um, I really enjoy field work as well. So, yeah. So how about um, your college education? Where did you go and what were some of the projects that you worked on? Yeah. Um, so I went to Occidental College, which is a small school in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, and so there was like 1600 students there. Mm. Um, and uh, and what was really special for me about being there um, was that I think this is true for many people in their college experience. It's not like the big curriculum or all the grand, you know, courses you would take, but it's actually the relationships that you build. And so there was a professor there who I worked with, Dr. Beth Breaker, um, you know, who, um, who inspired me, who was a newly hired professor who worked on insects at the time. Um, And so when, and so when I remember when I was, an entomology class with her because it was a brand new class after not being offered for a while. Mm-hmm. And so no, so very few people. So was, there were three other students in the class other than me. And so like our field trips is we'd go like, you know, get in, you know, her, um, uh, in, in a Bronco and actually, and she had, um, a baby at the time mm-hmm. and, and her husband would tag along for part of it too. So it was like, you know, three or four college students and our professor just going out in the desert and, uh, collecting bugs and building our collection for the course, seeing all kinds of amazing things, um, and doing projects on foraging behavior and going out and catching grasshoppers mm-hmm. and looking at their gut contents. Um, and so, I mean, I realized that taking that class was uh, gave me an opportunity to realize how cool it is to do field work with insects. But also, I realized that you know it's just great to have so much time uh, talking and working with another person who studies insects for a living. So she was a real inspiration to me. You know, you know, as a as a professor who could spend so much time focusing on her students, that I mm-hmm. was able to um, uh, have that kind of opportunity. A lot of people in college, you know, if you're at a big school, like if you take a class, there's, you know, hundreds of people in that class, you don't really have that kind of personal experience. And so I was just, I was blessed and lucky to be able to have that kind of, you know, really intimate opportunity 
to to study insects. Yeah, for sure. And that was your was that your undergraduate? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so um, uh, did you do anything else after that, um, schooling wise, or was that um, pretty much the extent yeah. of it? Uh, oh yeah. So after well, when I the the professor who I worked with, Dr. Breaker. Yeah. So she was. She was a tropical biologist, and okay. so she uh, did all her field, like did a lot of field work in Costa Rica. And she brought students to do research in Costa Rica all the time. And so, mm. when I, um, so after I graduated, I was I was in between things, and I was realizing that I wanted to go to graduate school to study ecology and evolutionary biology and insects in the yeah. tropics. Yeah. And so, essentially, thanks to her, um, she helped me find my way into a PhD program um, at the University of Colorado. And so the PhD was in ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, um, but what my what I focused on was the biology of invasive ants. And so the ants that so these are ants that, you know, are transported from one part of the world into a different location in the world. Yes. And then they take off and become super abundant. So probably most people like either in their kitchens or in their backyards, especially if you live in an urban area, these are the ants that you're probably most familiar with. They're probably not even from there. Yeah. You know, um, they just get transported all over the world. And so I was looking at an integrative way, trying to understand how this happened. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in the biology of invasive species, but I was also interested in ants. And so this is where they really came together. Mm, okay. Yeah. So you did, you did some research there. Um, yeah. Okay. So, and have we pretty much covered all your schooling so far? Yeah. Not, not so far, but um, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I mean, so like, like, yeah. So most people who are academics or professors, you end up having to move around a bit. So, yeah. so after I did my PhD for five years and then after that I had, I studied uh, fire ants in a postdoctoral for period of time for um, at the university of Houston. Okay. And then I've had a few professor jobs since then, but. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So um, yeah. So what was some of the um, research that you did during your schooling? Like let's get into the details is what I'm, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, so I was really interested in understanding how is it that you have, you know, 15, 20,000 ant species in the world, yeah. but there's like maybe 10 of them that end up being super duper successful and being transported over the world and outcompete other species and become really abundant. Yeah. Right. So, so when I grew up in Los Angeles, the ant that I grew up with was the Argentine ant, Linopithema mm. humili. And so that was, and so, and I didn't know at the time what it was called, what it was. Those are just, you know, those are the ants in my backyard, in my yeah. house. And so I only realized when I was in college, like, oh, these ants actually came from South America and you find them in Europe and you find them in Australia and yeah. in Japan and other places. And so how is it that those ones are so much more successful than the ones that we live with on a day-to-day -day that, that are native? Yeah. And so how is it that this, a small number of species can outcompete so many others? Mm -hmm. And so for my... So for my PhD, the one species that I was really interested in working on was what people call the little fire ant is the common name. Okay. Uh, Wasmat, the, the Latin name is Wasmania auroplanctata. Um, and so I worked with it in Costa Rica because that's one of the places where it's native. If you go into the forest, it's, it's uncommon. You see it once in a while, it's there. But then when you go out into 
pastures and plantations, but also if you go to other tropical areas in the world, um, uh, in Hawaii and um, in Africa and um, parts of Australia, then this ant is invasive and it takes over large quantities and it's mm. um, it's it's an ecological and a conservation and an economic problem. Interesting. And so I, and so part of what I was doing was trying to understand, to understand the ecology of where it lived compared to where it was introduced to see if there was some kind of behavioral shift um, about when they become invasive, how they do things differently. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I've, I've often wondered um, myself why certain species will, you know, do have, have regular numbers in their native area and then mm -hmm. they, go somewhere else and they become invasive there and they completely take off. Right. And the, yeah. the, the, the interesting thing to me was that, um, sometimes those climates can be very similar. Um, but the, and the species reacts so differently. Um, so did you find any, um, evidence or answers in that, in, in those studies or is it kind of still a big question? Well, I think I think I learned a lot, but like with most research, once you figure some things out, you know, then that opens up bigger questions, right? And yeah. so, the one of the questions I was really interested in specifically about the little fire ant, I essentially wasn't able to find an answer to. I found, um, like, well, there was a there was a mystery that I had yet to solve. But then I also did this other work with. Um, invasive ants in general, looking at how they interact with one another. One thing that you see is that invasive ants on average tend to be smaller in size than body size. Just if, just if you look at how big the ants are, yeah. then, then, then not only the, the communities that they're invading, but even compared to other ants that they're really closely related to. And so one of the things I discovered is, so for instance, if you look at the genus Linopithema, which is, which includes Argentine ants, yeah. there's many, many different Linopithema, but it turns out that the invasive one is on the smaller side of all the different Linopithema, hmm. you know, or for instance, if you, um, and this is true across all different kinds of ants. If you look at invasive phydoli, yeah. they are smaller than the other phydoli. And so, and so there's something about small size, small body size, that's part of being invasive. And so, and, it, and one of the things that I worked on was to understand how body size relates to the ability for ants to fight with one another. Cause sometimes when these, when ants become invasive, they actually attack other ants um, and they fight over resources. And then when they win those fights over resources, they become successful. And yeah. so it turns out that being small in body size is actually good for fighting because if you're small in size, then that allows you to mob up on top of one, you know, one another. So like, I've heard people like say the story, you know, uh, uh, you know, would you rather, you know, be attacked by 100 hamsters or one man size hamster? Like, yeah. you know, which one would be more, which one would be more dangerous to you, you know? Mm -hmm. And the end, and, and probably the more dangerous one is if you have a hundred of them going at you all at once, because you just can't deal with all those attacks. And so, yeah. um, so like, for instance, the, in Los Angeles, the harvester ant, the native harvester ant has been often excluded by Argentine ants. <laughs> 
And when harvester ants interact with Argentine ants, like 10 Argentine ants will jump on top of the harvester ant and subdue it. Uh, and it just does not survive the interaction. It just gets incapacitated. Yeah. And it has no way to fight back because the Argentine ants are so much smaller compared to them that they have nothing even to, you know, to bite because they're so small. You know, it's they just get mobbed. Yeah. So to us, we kind of all think, you know, from our huge human bodies, ants seem all kind of small. But when ants are when you look at how one ant sees another ant, a lot of ants are like 10 times the size of other ants. You know, there's a lot of size variability within ants. And it turns out the invasive ones tend to be really small. There's There really aren't like the large body size in invasive ants. It's just not a thing. Um, and so I did some work on that. Interesting. So did you notice at all that, or if, did you notice if, um, did you compare this, the size of the invasive ant to the same species of that ant from its from its native area like when they're invasive did they shrink in size or like is that is that possible or did you find that at all um, yeah. or am i completely misunderstanding that yeah no that's a great question so yeah because that's what you think if there is if small size in an advantage which is an advantage when you become invasive then you figure evolution would work to yeah, you know could result they adapt being at smaller. all to that right yeah right and so i looked at that in the one ant that i was studying um the most closely the wasmania arpentata the little fire ant yeah. and indeed that and that was the case that the invasive ones were actually smaller where they were invasive compared to where they came from. Even so if you looked the at the one species, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So if you look at the native ones in Central and South America, they're actually bigger than the ones that you find in other places of the world where they're invasive. Uh, you know, which you know, which supports the idea that actually, even not just comparing among species within a species, there's an advantage in being small. Yeah. Huh. Wow. That's super interesting. I had no idea. Um. Yeah. So. After so that was your PhD work, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, have you done any more of that since then, or what have you done? What have you done with your career um, since then? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So I um, so shortly after I did my dissertation with invasive ants, um, I realized that I, I wanted to move on to different and new things. Yeah. So I I I, I was one of the I, th I was early on in looking at invasive ants from an integrative perspective, not just looking at one species, but looking mm -hmm. at them as a whole. And so, and, and as I was doing this, not because of me, but just because I think people game generally entered this in interested in this field of work in general, yeah. there was a lot of people who started moving in to do really cool, exciting work about invasive ants. And I thought, you know what, like, let them do their work. I'm curious about working on other things. And so um, I sort of thought the experiments I wanted to do would have been really big in scope. And I probably, and a lot of, and I also noticed that a lot of the work in that area was really moving towards understanding genomics um, mm. and looking at genetic differences between invasive and introduced populations, yeah. which have meant would have meant a lot of bench work in the lab. And that's not really where I wanted to go. Yeah. I mean, and so, <laughs> and actually it turns out though, ant that I was studying, the little fire ant, it turns out that one of the keys to their success, which we're still trying to understand, it has since been discovered like 10 years after I was working on them, mm. that the, that the, the ones that are invasive are clonal um, oh, that they actually okay. make 
they make copies of themselves. So, so there's normal sexually reproducing ones, yeah. just normal reproductive behavior where, where they are native. But the invasive populations just break out into this genuinely bizarre genetic mechanism where the, the workers are the clones of the queen. Wow. Um, which is really uncommon in ants yeah. or in general. Yeah. And so, um, and so I was trying to do this ecological behavioral work to understand what caused them to behave differently and be invasive. And we don't exactly know what it is about the clonality that results in them being more successfully invasive. You could argue about that, but clearly there's a connection there is that the, yeah. the ones that are super abundant and invasive and clonal and the ones that are not, are not, um, and so, and so that made me realize that a lot of the the forefront in those issues was genetic and genomic, and I was more interested in ecology and behavior. Yeah, of yeah. course, you know. And so, um, I loved working where I was working in Costa Rica, and there's 430 something species of ants that are known from that particular place. Wow. Um, in La Selva Biological Station in Costa Rica. And I got to know the ants really well because I was looking at it from a community perspective. So, you know, I, you know, give me a a computer and a microscope and I could identify a couple hundred ants pretty easily, you know, with the resources that other people have made available. And so, um, and so there's, so I was interested in all different kinds of ants that nest in the leaf litter on the floor of the, of the rainforest. and and so the, and uh, I've sort of moved into uh, what a friend of mine has called experimental natural history. Essentially, I find a, a question that I'm curious about, and then I do experiments to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent about ten years working on this one species that would move its nests all the time, and so. Uh, I was just doing a simple experiment, tracking colonies over time about something else, but the the ants just kept disappearing. Like I put a flag in the ground next to where the nest was and I'd look at the ants and I come back the next day, the hole in the ground was there, but the ants weren't there anymore. And it took me a little while to realize that they had, they had just moved, but they moved next door, like, like two feet. Um, And then I go to that new nest where they moved to. And I wait another week or two and they move to a different location. And, wow. and so, and I, and I soon discovered that all of these ants all throughout this one rainforest were moving their nests on average about one or two, every one or two weeks um, to a different place. And I was trying to figure out how and why it's a very weird thing. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause that takes a lot of energy for an entire colony to move as frequently as that. With right. no, with no, with no, um, like obvious sign as to, or reason as to why. Um, so did you find what? any reason, any logical, like explanation as to why they were doing this or method or anything like that? Well, I, I think so. Um, and so I, when people look at the work that I've done on this, I think they're more convinced that I am that what the answer is, but I haven't really like, as people say, put a nail in the coffin and mm-hmm. like shown it to be entirely the true. Yeah. What I have done is ruled out most of the things that you would think of off the bat. Got so it. you might think they're doing it for more food, but really they're not um, because um, they still forage in the same place for food, even after they move their nest. Yeah. You might think that it's about competing for space with neighbors, but they have their territory. When they move their nests, they move their nests inside the same territory. 
And so what they do is, let's say there's three holes in the territory, and they'll just move between those three holes. And when they're not in that, wow. and, and so what they do is they maintain that empty hole, even when they're not living in it. And then they'll switch back and forth. Imagine like, you know, a, a rich family that has like four condos and they yeah. just choose which this week I'm going to live in that condo this week. I'm going to live in that condo. Um, and so to make the really long story short, my best guess to the expert about what's going on. And I do have some evidence to suggest this is what's happening. Yeah. Is, is that they move their nests so they don't get attacked by army ants. Um, so in this forest where I work, army ants are, uh, a common predator, um, yeah. and w- almost all army ants, what they eat are other other ants. That is yeah. what army ants eat. That's yes. they specialize on ants, right? And so, so it's kind of funny. People think, what are the what is the greatest enemy to ants? And the answer is, well, they're just other ants. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, um, and so, these ar- army ants are blind. Um, they they can't see. They might sense light, but they don't see images because their eyes aren't built for that. Yeah. And so while people think of ants as being oriented towards odor, this is far more, even more true for army ants because they're effectively blind. Yeah. And so army ant colonies could be, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of ants roaming through the soil or on top of the forest floor, blindly following together, spending yeah. a different place every night, um, hmm. eating what's in their path. And so it is presumable that when they find their prey, they, they detect them by smell. Yeah. And so army ants attack other ant colonies and mostly eat their brood. They eat the baby ants, the larvae and the pupae. Yeah. Um, and so they don't usually kill the whole colony. They just sort of rob the babies because also those are more delicious for them to eat anyway and easier yeah. for them to carry off. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and so, what I found really interesting is army ants would go through my research site all the time, but they, but they very rarely would ever enter these holes that my ants lived in, the Aphenogaster aeronoides. And so what they would do um, is the, the, you have a, the hole in the ground is about the size of, I don't know, a nickel or a quarter, something like that. It's actually a big, compared to ant nest entrances, it's a rather big really hole. Yeah. Like, yeah, so you can actually take a left flashlight and look inside, and you'll see ants hanging out in there. So it's really weird that it's a large nest entrance, but that's what it is. And so the army ants, there'd be a column of army ants going straight past the nest entrance, but no one would go inside. And so they rarely, rarely ever got attacked. And so, but once in a while, I would see them attack a colony. But not frequently. And then because I was tracking these colonies and when they were moving from nest to nest, I noticed that the colonies that they attacked were the ones that had been in the ground for a longer period of time. They were probably just ready to move and they haven't yet. So let's say they move on average like once every week or two. Then these are ones that were just ready to move, but then army ants got to them, right? But if a, if a colony had freshly moved into a new hole, then the army ants didn't move in. And so what I was thinking is that the army ants smell the odor of the ants coming from the hole. Yeah. Right? And then and that's what makes them attack it. Mm-hmm. And so the, if they keep changing nests every week, then that nest does not accumulate odor. Right. Right. And yeah. so so this somehow would mean that if you're in the nest longer, it's more smelly. And so it turns out that if, if I could experimentally add odor to a nest um, and that would actually make the ants want to occupy it for a shorter period of time. 
But if I were to actually ventilate a nest to sort of remove more odors, then they'd actually occupy it more quickly. Um, It turns out what I haven't shown is that army ants actually like and are attracted to their smell. Um, And I think the answer for that is simply is that army ants are these, you know, big colonies where decisions are made in a very complex, diffuse manner. um, And they just, and so I haven't been able to manipulate our ant colonies to be attracted to the odor of yeah. these ants. Um, but I do have shown that the behavior of these ants responds to the nest moving behavior responds to the, you know, the frequency of army ant attacks. Yeah. Um, so that was like one set of questions that I was working on is how and why do these ants move their nests? Wow. Um, which is just a weird, curious thing. But what I think, I think, uh, what's interesting and valuable about this work is that when I started doing this, people thought, oh, people have tended to think of ant colonies like plants, like you're rooted, they're rooted in a place in the ground, and that's where the colony lives, right? Yeah. And a, a queen starts a nest, and that's where they live, and then they live out their life, and then the colony dies, and the colony's over. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out by studying nest movements in this one species, that led me to realize that many, many other ant species move their nests all the time. And so it's not a weird thing that my ants move their nests. Actually, most, the majority of ant species probably do this nest movement on a regular basis. It's just that the stereotype of ant colonies being planted in one place in one time, you know, one place for their life is actually the rarity. Yeah. But those are the colonies that people, those are the ones that people study, right? Because if could, because it's really hard to study ants if they keep moving their nests, because uh-huh. you know, you, yeah. co- you, you leave, you come back and they're gone. Yeah. You know, how do you know if it's the same ants? Um, and so, um, which makes studying their biology in the field clearly a lot harder. Um, but um, so the ants that we, the ants, that we know from long-term studies in the field where we tracked colonies year after year after year. Yeah. Um, those are the ones who tend not to move. Hmm. Obviously. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. That is super interesting. I had no idea. Um, yeah, that's a, I mean, that, that would make sense as to why they would move so much. Um, and I think your, your, um, your loose conclusion <laughs> is, um, <laughs> I think pretty logical um, for the most part. I, I, um, I think that makes a lot of sense, and that's super interesting how they've how they've um, figured out that if they move more, then they smell less, and the army ants don't go after them. So that's that's super interesting to me, um, and it's just fascinating Ooh. how how ants um, you know communicate and do the things that they do. Um, they're super interesting to me. So. Um, yeah, so moving on to kind of more of your um, more um, personal topics on your end. Um, yeah. So uh, in the world of entomology, and also not, um, do you have any inspirations or um, people that you've looked up to throughout your career? Um, and again, this can be somebody in the world of entomology or science um, or not. And really just who do you look up to or who is your inspiration? Yeah. Um, I would say uh, like a historical figure of entomology who I find really inspiring is uh, Dr. Mary Talbot. Um, yeah. And so she's um, she's not as famous as other uh, entomologists or other myrmecologists, myrmecology being the study of ants. Yes. Um, but um, 
but she has a history of spectacular work yeah. um, where, where she, um, but also her approach to doing science um, is similar to the way that I've ended up doing things where she was really focused on the natural history of the organism and, and getting to know one particular field site and getting to know the ants really well and then studying their biology, but then doing careful experiments to then understand the biology of the things that interested her. Yeah. And so, um, and so, so there's, she spent decades working at the E.S. George Reserve in Michigan. And so she was the professor of a small college in, um, in, um, in Missouri, yeah. um, a small women's college. Um, and so it's interesting is like all of the famous myrmecologists of the day knew her well and corresponded with her um, and and asked her for her expertise, but she's not really written down in history as, um, you know, one of the famous pioneers, in part because she was teaching at a small, relatively unknown college. And also she was a woman, which, you know, uh, I think we've made a lot of progress uh, yeah. since then. Yeah. And we still need to make more progress. Absolutely. But I think she was even more marginalized then. But but it wasn't really even like in the realm of possibility for her, uh, you know, in the 1940s to have a professor position at a large research university. Um, but, and she went where she did and she excelled really well and had a spectacular career of research, understanding the biology of ants. Um, she did all these experiments on the physiological ecology of ants, like understanding okay. how they respond to changing uh, uh, temperature and climate conditions and how, and so she created these lab apparatuses to look at how ant colonies responded to humidity and temperature which looks very very much to experiments that people only started really doing with ants like 10 or 15 years ago when we started really looking at how climate change affects ant communities yeah and she pioneered this work back in the 1940s yeah and so there are some people that develop similar things who are there's this guy who's called the father of physiological ecology but mary talbot was actually doing this stuff 10 years before that yeah. you know but no one's calling her the mother of physiological ecology but really um arguably she did work that invented the field um so she so she's a great inspiration to me yeah um definitely okay very cool um yeah so um moving on to another um one of these in, uh, in questions that i love to ask is um what are some of those what are one do you have any of those things that you go to um to get your mind off work or um it was school back in the day but um any i guess you would yeah. call them hobbies um do you have any hobbies that you enjoy to um get away with yeah um yeah, so uh, I love to read, um, like okay. uh, you know, fiction, just novels. Like, yeah. so I do plenty of reading. Um, um, uh, where I, if I have, I, I also I run. Um, you know, just uh, not as often as I probably should. But mm -hmm. I realize that if I'm trying to get work done and my head is unclear, yeah. then just going out, just getting some exercise, yeah, um, it's is great. Um, I do really like to, you know, spend more time um, in outdoors camping and backpacking. I think it's yeah. it's I don't get out as much as I would like to, um, but I absolutely love to. And so now actually where I happen to be at the moment where I'm talking to you from is from a field station out in the Mojave Desert. And so now my job is I'm still a professor at the university, but my job is to help uh, run this field station. Okay. And so that means so now I get to um, work out in the desert. Um, and so, 
and so actually that's you know a tremendous way to clear my mind and mm-hmm. just to go for a, a walk in the desert yeah very cool and the, ants, and the ants are great out here too so oh yeah oh yeah i'm sure yeah so um yeah is that pretty much all your your hobbies we pretty much covered all that yeah. I mean, I mean, I think also just like hanging out home and spending time with my family. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a moderate geek about board games Yeah. too, you know? Yeah. So, so there's that. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So um, did we pretty much cover all your research you wanted to talk about all your schooling, pretty much all of that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's other kind of cool research projects I've been working on, but I could talk about that for five hours. So, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. I'm, pretty much everyone's like that. So, um, yeah. yeah, so what are some exciting things you have planned for the future? Do you want to um, go on any exciting trips or um, you want to shift focus with your research at all or just continue what you've been working on? Um, really, what what are your big plans for the future? Yeah. Um, so for the last 20 years, my research has been based out of this field station in Costa Rica. Yeah. Um, and, and I've been bringing a lot of students from the U.S. to do work down there. Um, and, and I've really uh, learned so much from working in that one site. Um, uh, and I still think I'm going to continue to go down there once in a while since the whole pandemic started. It's been a yeah. couple of years because of the whole pandemic. And, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I really miss. I can't wait to get back down there. Oh, yeah, um, sure. But I but, um, you know, at some point recently, I thought it's like I could just be doing this for another 20 years and I'll make more discoveries and it'll be nice and it'll be fun. And mm-hmm. science is cool. Yeah. But um, but I think I wanted to do something a little more or different, um, but also have a bigger community impact and so i mean and so the way i'd like to do this is that um i'm now working to do community science projects or what some people call citizen science um and so these and and a lot of this is in association with the with the team of people at the natural history museum of los angeles county who are super duper experts on this and wonderful people and i've learned a lot from them and so so right, there's a project which uh, I'm starting right now uh, with a student working with me. Her name is Nadia Naji, and this and we just launched it last week, and it's called Harvester Hunt. And so, uh, and so this actually takes me back to my roots, where we're interested in invasive species. Yeah. I was saying how harvester ants are kicking out. I'm sorry, Argentine ants are kicking harvester ants out of their native habitat in the city. Um, But it turns out if you just walk the streets of Los Angeles, you'll see harvester ants once in a while here or there. Here's in someone's backyard, here an abandoned lot, you know, someone in a public park. It's like, oh, there still are harvester ants. They haven't been entirely removed by Argentine ants. But the question is, where are they? Like, how do you find them? So the only way to do this would be to just walk the entire city and map them out. That doesn't seem to be, you know, a good way of doing this. But there are, but there are so many people who love nature and everyone has a good camera on their cell phones. And so I don't know, I I don't know, Braden, have you, are you familiar with iNaturalist? Yes, 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 I am. Right. Yep. Yeah, and, and so so iNaturalist for for other listeners right so iNat iNat as people call it yeah. is an app where you can uh, take pictures of anything in nature any organism and then you upload it and you say where and what it was and people help you identify it. and so it's a big platform it's like you know like 
you know, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, but just for biodiversity. Yes. Um, and and there are many scientific discoveries that have come, like, you know, rare species that have been found, things that were thought to have been extinct that are not, but also knowing that certain things live in certain places where they don't. Yeah. And so and so we're trying to get as many people as possible all across Los Angeles, whenever they see what people in L.A. called a red ant, which is a big, chunky harvester ant, mm-hmm. take a picture of it, upload it to INAT, and that will have the specific geographic data for where the ant is located, mm-hmm. which means that we'll be able to have a map all across Los Angeles of where harvester ants are, um, which also would suggest also maybe where they're not. Right. And so if we learn where heart, but if we learn where harvester ants continue to exist, even when Argentine ants have already taken over most of the city, then that help us learn how urban biodiversity is important and how it can persist, even though you have invasive species. So also what I like about this is that it gets me to working with people in our community about biodiversity. Yes. And also, you know, and to me, I've spent so much time flying somewhere, you know, special and exotic to research the rainforest, but I'm realizing that the people in my own community matter and, and urban biodiversity is really important. And especially as the world is urbanizing more and as climate change um, is getting faster and worse, that understanding biodiversity of cities is actually really important. Yeah. Um, And so this project is all those pieces together. It deals with ants. It has the community sciences, the urban biodiversity um, and the invasive species piece. And so that's like the, the new project that I'm really uh, working on right now. That's really cool. Yeah. So, so can just anybody in LA just um, participate in that? Just anybody with a phone or. Yes. Thank you for asking. And so, yeah, so our website is harvester hunt dot, dot org. Um, or if you just Google up harvester hunt, it should come up. And so if you have a phone and you take a picture of a harvester ant, then it's really easy to get started on iNaturalist. You just yeah. download the app, you create an account, and then you can, um, and all the instructions are on our Harvester Hunt website. It's it's really easy. Mm-hmm. And so if you have already had pictures of Harvester Ants, you can upload them, um, but also, um, you know, we're going to be running this project for the next few years. We're hoping, you know, in the next several months to get a whole bunch of records so that we can do some research, you know, using geographic information system mapping to yeah. find out where they are or where they are. So we know where to focus our efforts. Um, but we'll be doing this for a good long while. And so, yeah, I want everybody in LA to know that said, I mean, if you, wherever you live, if you have, um, if you have any kind of bug that you're interested in, you can take a photo of it and upload it to INAT. Um, and probably someone's going to tell you, um, what it is, which yeah. I think is super cool. Uh, but then also then you'll be finding out a whole community of other people who are also interested in the same stuff. Very cool. Yeah. So that actually uh, segues into our last uh, our last topic really well. And that is uh, where can the viewers go to uh, learn more about what you've done and then also some of the projects that you've been working on. So uh, your Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, anything like that. So social media or website or um, stuff like that. Yeah. So the easiest way to find me, um, if you're on Twitter is, so my Twitter account is Ormiga. That's H O R M I G A, um, which is Spanish for ant. Um, so I got 
that early back in 2007 got the the Ormiga uh, handle and so I'm really active on Twitter so if you have any questions then feel free just to send me a message or or tag me and I'd be glad to respond Ormiga on Twitter Um, and um, my lab website which has um, my all my publications and information about other research that I'm doing is uh, leaflitter.org so that's one word leaf litter as in just the leaves on the ground org so because i have historically have worked on the ants that live in the leaf litter yep. yeah um uh those are the the two best ways to find me all right very cool and i'll also put links to those uh in the show notes of this episode but thank you so much uh terry for uh being on the show um it was really great to learn about all the research that you've done um and just the fascinating things that you have worked on uh throughout the years so yeah thank you so much for being on the show Thanks so much, Braden. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right.